Good morning. Someone's out there. There we are. Good morning. There we go. Hey, CJ. It's good to see your face back there. Well, we are in the middle, I guess, beginning middle of a series uh, on the Minor Prophets. And each week we are looking at a different book, really, and God's message to his people through the Minor Prophets. Remember, um, there are reading plans, like Jessica said, in the back, um, and also uh, on Facebook they'll be popping up, giving you reminders. We really want you to engage, as there's a lot of kind of material as we're going through these things, and so we want to be able to continue to read those things and, and spend time on God's Word and, and know that it's important. Um, as we think about minor prophets, just remember that their messages are not minor um, or not as important. They just take a shorter time to say what they're going to say. Um, I had a secretary uh, once who was a who was a Catholic lady, and one day we were talking in the office, and she said, "You know, every church needs a Father Fast Mass. It's like someone that just gets in and just like blows it, really like does the sermon in like twenty minutes." And so, like, as the book they would come today is, is the book of Obadiah. I don't want to say he's kind of that guy. He's the father fast mass. He's the, Obadiah's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's only 21 verses. Um, and he's a guy that we, that we don't know much about really. There's a, there's 11 other people, uh, in the Old Testament that have the same name, Obadiah. Um, but none of them are actually, that we can, there's no evidence that actually connects them with this prophet. Um, but what we do know about Obadiah is we do know kind of the setting, um, or when the, the message or the prophecy was given. And it was given, it was delivered after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And so I want to show you um, a little video. We don't do this very often, but I want to show a video to kind of set the scene a little bit, um, to kind of give us uh, some, some of the history so you kind of understand the, the context of what Obadiah is doing as he's delivering this message. And so um, if you want to hit the lights and then show that thing. By the days of the prophet Jeremiah, Jerusalem's fate was sealed. After generations of fluctuating loyalty, both spiritually and politically, the southern kingdom of Judah was about to come to a crossroads. Submission to Babylon that promised life and yet exile, or resistance to Babylon guaranteeing both death and exile. As Jeremiah would see, submission is a hard sell to human nature, even if it guarantees life. The first siege of Jerusalem by Babylon is recorded in 2 Kings 24, verses 10 through 12. It was during the short three-month reign of 18-year-old Jehoiachin, who was left to defend his father's decision to rebel against Babylon. Babylon marched into Judah determined to regain control. 2 Kings records that Jehoiachin surrendered once a siege had been laid against Jerusalem. He and 10,000 prominent Judeans were taken to Babylon as captives. Nebuchadnezzar also took all the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king's palace, and he set up a new Judean king, Zedekiah. Politically, Judah's king Zedekiah lived in submission to Babylon only in show. He sided with a failing Egypt in a last-ditch effort to resist Babylon. But once Egypt was destroyed, Judah was alone. One by one, the fortified cities of Judah were destroyed, and Jerusalem itself was laid siege to. The general horrors of siege warfare were experienced in Jerusalem in great measure, starvation, disease, and cannibalism. 
the siege lasted at least a year and a half and ended with the brutality of besieging soldiers that had been working to break the city walls. The city was set on fire. Zedekiah was blinded and many residents of Jerusalem slaughtered. Those who survived were exiled. The words of God's prophets had been fulfilled. Jerusalem was no more. All that was left was to hope that God would continue to fulfill his promises. It's like the BNN right there. Um, I hope you kind of get a little sense of the brutality, the pain, the loss of lives of God's people. Um, Jerusalem is completely destroyed. The temple is pillaged. The Israelites are carried off as prisoners of war, um, just as God had promised. He had promised this because of their disobedience and their worship of other gods. And then Obadiah comes along with this message. And so this is the scene of where we're at. And in verse 1, he says this. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. We've heard the report from the Lord. And the messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise up. Rise against her for battle. Now, wait a second here. I thought that this was supposed to be a message to Israel's people. How is this encouraging to Israel that God is going to send a battle? He's going to send war to Edom. And who is, who is Edom anyway? Well, Edom is a, is an ancient people group, a nation, um, that inhabited basically the, the south land, the south of Judah, south of the Dead Sea. And so what's important to note is that the Edomites are actually descendants of Esau. Um, the twin brother of Jacob, if you remember that. If you go back to Genesis chapter 25, you'll see their story. And as you read through their story, you remember that even in the womb, uh, these two brothers were at odds with one another. They were, they were fighting each other in the womb. I'm not sure exactly what that's like um, for people to be fighting inside of a womb, um, but I can kind of imagine them wrestling around to see who can get out first. I don't know. Um, but we see in verse 22 that, that Rebecca, the mom, goes and asks God about it. It's such a battle in her, in her stomach. And, she's, and God says this to her in verse 22. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people. And the elder shall serve the younger. Now why that's important is because in that culture, that was a very different shift. The firstborn was always the one that was favored, was the one that was given the inheritance, that was given the main rights to the family, and that, that was everything was passed down through him. But God says here that the younger is actually going to get that. The younger, the older is going to serve the younger. And so as the, as they, as the two come out, they're still fighting. And Jacob is actually holding on to his brother Esau's leg as they come out. And you can kind of imagine the sibling rivalry. I don't know what the sibling rivalry looks like in your home, um, but sometimes there's some in mine. Um, but I want to say that, um, these guys, that probably makes your life and my life look easy compared to these two guys. And on top of that, their parents didn't really help out very much. The dad, um, Isaac, favors Esau, the firstborn. And the mom favors Jacob, the secondborn. And so both parents have their favorites, which is a pretty bad idea. 
Just so you know, we talked about parenting a little while ago, but it's not a good idea to have a favorite, and it will always cause rifts in your family. And so if you remember the story, as the story proceeds, Esau ends up selling his birthright for some food. He comes home hungry one day, and he sells his birthright for some food, and and Jacob tricks his his older, blind dad um, into thinking that Esau um, was him or that he was Esau, and so Jacob actually passes down the promises of God to the grandfather Abraham of being a nation that God would bless and restore and with broken relationships between humans and bring the Messiah through, and he passes that down to Jacob. Now, that wasn't outside of God's plan. He knew that was going to happen. That's why he says that in the womb. Um, But we see here, we have these two nations and these two families that grow from that, the Israelites and the Edomites. And so Israel is living in the north with their great city of Jerusalem, and the Edomites are living in the south, uh, south of the Dead Sea, with their great city called Petra. Ellie, you can throw those um, pictures of Petra up there. Um, Petra was, was a city that was cut into the face of the mountain, and it was really only accessible through, through really small little narrow canyons that were easy to defend. And so as you see these pictures, there's two of them up there. Um, you may remember them from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It was in that movie. There, you probably, there's other movies that have been filmed there, but, but there's been lots of stuff. And so this is, that was Petra. And so in verse 1, Obadiah sends this message to God's people, and it begins with Edom. And that's the, that's the background that goes with it. And he says, because Israel is being destroyed, the he, he brings this message to Edom, and he says, the Edomites were actually enjoying and celebrating the demise of their relatives when this happened. The scene that we saw, the, the city burning and, and things being pillaged, they were in, in the midst of that. They're patting themselves on their back. In great pride, they're saying, we're way smarter for where we built our homes. We're, we're not going to be conquered like them. Our city is, be, is better. Basically, they're, they're gloating uh, and, and really participating in Israel's pain and loss. And so God comes to Obadiah and he says, tell my people I'm going to bring war to Edom. And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, what's going to happen to Edom? He says this, verse 2, Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And if you continue to read in the next verses from 5 to 9, God tells them how thorough the destruction is going to be, that they're going to be completely destroyed. If you skip ahead to verse 18, I want to read that real quick. Verse 18 says this, The house of Jacob shall be set afire, and the house of Joseph aflame, and the house of Esau, or the Edomite, stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivors for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. This is a pretty severe word from God. No survivors. Nation completely wiped off the face of the planet. And as we look back in history, we see that God's words actually do come true. By the end of the 5th century, Edom was removed from Petra, and, and later they would disappear from history completely. The nation no longer exists. Just a side note here as we think about this. Um, this is one of the ways that we know God's words are true and reliable when we look at prophecy. 
When God predicts something will happen, and then it does, it reveals that he's actually sovereign, that he knows what's going to happen, that he's in control of it, and that we can actually trust his words and what he says about him, and how life is best lived in his image, which is what his word is all about. Proverbs 21.30 says this, There is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. Basically, no one can discredit or disprove what he says. Job says it this way in Job 23, But he is unchangeable. Who can turn him back? What he desires, he does. What this means is that all that God has designed, he does. All that he decrees or all that he says, he's going to perform. All that he says is true. God is supreme over all things. His supremacy doesn't need to seek counsel. He doesn't have to ask advice or ask someone to help him figure it out. He knows how to rule. And all that he does, he's supremely and wise in orchestrating all of it for his purposes. If you look back over the entire story of God, if you look back over the Bible, he demonstrates his supremacy in, his, in how he speaks through, through all throughout Scripture. And, and really, a lot of crazy things happen when God speaks. If you go back to the very beginning in Genesis, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but he speaks and like worlds appear. That's pretty crazy. Like tree, bloop. Right? If you go on further in Numbers, God uses a donkey to speak to his prophets so that his prophet would follow his ways. In Exodus 14, God commands the Red Sea to, to split in half and not just split in half and stand on water, but actually dries the mud up instantly so his people can walk across. In Joshua 10, God orders the sun to stand still so his people can continue the war against their enemies and win. In Isaiah 38, God confirms a promise that, he, that he's uh, in control and he makes the sun to cast its shadow backwards. How crazy is that? The sun is shining there. Instead of the shadow there, it's the other direction. In, in 1 Kings 17, God makes birds feed his prophets. In 2 Kings 6, there's this crazy story of God making a, a head, a metal head of an axe float on water. It sinks to the ground, and then God makes it float to the top so that his, his people can get it back. God shuts the mouths of lions, hungry lions, when they're thrown, people are thrown to them. In Daniel, we see he causes fire not to burn, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they're thrown in. And I want to remind you that God's words are supreme. And what he says spans all time and all culture and should then thus inform us in how we view life. Perhaps one of the strongest things that we could ever say is that the Bible is the word of God. Have you ever thought about that? The same word that makes a tree appear is the same words that he wrote down on a page so that you and I would know who he is. That concept should blow our minds. When we talk about the Bible, we're actually talking about something that the all-powerful God, the all-knowing, the transcendent God decided to write to you and to me. What could be more important than that? Just think about this. If, if, how would you respond if a voice out of heaven spoke directly to you and said, Stephen, do this? You would probably do it you would probably live your life according to what you were told. Can I tell you, that is what happened when God wrote the Bible. 
He spoke directly to people to write down what He wanted them to know so that you and I would know how to live our life best. And as we look back over history and we see the fall of Edom and God said that it would happen, it's just another example of the reliability of His Word. And it's a reminder, really, of his word that goes back to Genesis chapter 12 that says that he's going to keep and he's going to bless his people and whoever blesses them, he's going to bless and whoever curses them, he's going to curse. And so God continues to keep his word over and over and over again. So please know, as you read scripture, you can trust it. You can live your life according to it, even when the culture around us says that can't be true. God's words are above time and above cultural realities. And these are God's words breathed out so that we may know who He is and we might have purpose in our life regardless of when you live or when you're reading them. So if we go back to Obadiah, I know that was a short, that was not a short tangent, but in Obadiah, um, in verses 10 through 14, we see that the root of Edom's sin here and why God speaks out against them is actually pride. Edom's pride had shown itself during the time of Israel's deepest need and Israel's deepest humiliation. Their pride came out. When the Babylonians were carrying them off into exile, Edom was excited about it. And actually the nation of Edom actually assisted them and reveled in their own fortune, verse 12 says, that they gloated over them and that they stole their stuff. They looted and pillaged during the misfortune of God's people. You see this idea of pride is, well, pride will always take whatever opportunity, a prideful person will take whatever opportunity they can to to exalt themselves over others. That's what pride is. It's thinking more highly of oneself rather than taking responsibility and care for someone else. A prideful person will always abandon needy people and will derive pleasure from another person's failure. I want to say this is not just a problem with the nation of Edom. This is actually a human problem. It's why nations, it's why adults and children, you and I still have this problem today. As you think about this idea of of how a prideful person is played out with, with abandonment and gloating rather than taking the responsibility for others. What are some ways you see that in our world today? What are some ways that that pride has played itself in our world today? What do you think? If you're new with us, you get to answer. So, what are some ways that this type of pride has played out, this type of abandonment and gloating rather than taking responsibility for other people has played out in our world and in our culture? Okay, yeah. Good. John. I was going to say something quite similar that if Trump does something that legitimately or illegitimately be pinned on him, it Yeah, we decide who's right and who's wrong in those things, and we want to abandon and push and divide everyone else and look down on them whether they have a different opinion than us. Yeah, regardless of what side of it we're on. Yeah, good. What else? Based, in, based on our views of faith, um, politics, or, ide- or any kind of philosophical ideology, 
we tend to like create um, communities, but at the same time creating us and in them, dividing ourselves from our fellow human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we segment life often and pull people around us that are like us and look down on others that aren't like us. That's pride. Yeah, good. What else? Yeah, comparing, being in competition. I don't know if there is a healthy competition. I don't know. I love competition, but maybe that's pride in me. I'm, I'm a prideful person, yeah. I see a lot of like, dialogue uh, being destroyed in all facets, I guess, of life. Because people are willing to listen mm-hmm. because they're so worried about you being right. Or uh, there's just not a lot of listening at home that takes place in a lot of Yeah, we often listen to defend rather than listen to understand. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. I, I was kind of reminded of the, the term Schadenfreude, where so many um, people got up when AIDS came out. That people a little older, so I remember this. <laughs> Hurricanes happened in places, and preachers would get up and say, "Well, that's God's judgment on you." That's you know, it, rather than being on the other side and saying, "Wow, this is happening. These people don't know God. How can we help them?" We totally miss the point of being able to help instead pointed fingers and stood on high and said we're yeah we often point fingers rather than have compassion yeah in lots of things yeah that's good I think um, I see this in the schools more since my kids are in the schools like bullying is such a bad thing like so if a bully bullies all of a sudden everyone's bullying the bully and I'm like wait you've just done the exact same thing the other way it doesn't make sense hmm. it's great to me I'm like wait Everyone started bullying the bully. I'll hear stories. I'm like, wait, that's not, that's not nice either. Be kind to that. Like, why, why is it, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I suppose that kind of plays into the whole concept of, like, once somebody has done something that you do not approve of, like, you know, trying to get back at them mm-hmm. or trying to, like, you know, bring them down in some way because you feel that they deserve mm-hmm. less than you or less than what they have comparison to you yeah that whole deserving piece is big miles yeah for sure so you think about this how i think it's easy sometimes to pick it out in culture how about in our own lives what are some ways this plays out in our own lives of like abandonment and rather than than caring for other people's needs we we think about ourselves sibling rivalry yes i've never seen that in my house and you've never done that no yeah that's good. I think just like keeping records or tabs of the ways we've been wronged by friends and family. It's mm. really easy to have that list going. Yeah, keeping continual records and adding them up. Yeah, so that we can hold ourselves up and make ourselves feel something better about ourselves. Yeah, good. I think sometimes we put, or I put unrealistic expectations on family or friends to meet a certain standard that's mm. just definitely not there. Yeah. Uh, things that I look for in them, I should be finding that. Yeah, things that we, even good standards we may put on people. We hold them to those things, yeah. And, and in pride, if, if we can do them and they can't, or whatever, yeah, good. What else? I see it a little bit in my workplace. I have a tendency, since there's such an emphasis on forming, like, beyond what is normally expected of someone who are working, that if someone else is coming in, 
Yeah. Making sure you're taking care of you and not getting any of those other pieces. Yeah. I think on the other side of that too, right? Like, I only work, want to work with talented people. Right? What's that say about me? I'm the most talented. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I wish, I wish God would give me some other people to lead in my missional community. Yeah. Good. What else? I'll see it in my life and my family, just the silent, um, condemning of my family members by me just because they live a certain way or believe something else. That mm. is also, um, you know, a lawful pride for me. Yeah. Yeah, as people condemn us, we look at them and condemn them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, for, like, my family specifically, my grandparents are divorced, and so there's a lot of tension and them trying to make each other better than the other, and I see that, like, growing in my mom and her siblings, and there's a lot of who's doing better than the other because... You know, yeah, for sure. I think oftentimes in relationships too, we're just like we'll say little things along the way to like that don't sound so bad, but like you're actually tearing down the person and pushing yourself up. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I was gonna say like a lack of encouragement, like mm. Yeah, we don't want to be seen as a person of need, do we? Yeah, and sometimes we encourage others. That makes us feel like we're needy. Yeah, good. Yeah, we'll serve to be seen or like if they receive it right rather than just like I'm serving because I'm serving the king of the universe. Yeah, good. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, like, I'm serving, am I serving selfishly because I want accolades or because I, I want it to look good or am I serving out of humility? And only Jesus knows that, right? Mm. It can look the same on the outside. It can look the same. One is entrapping and, and uh, like changing to you and another is freedom. You know, it can look the same on the outside, but my pride, it, it can uh, feel very different. Yeah. It's so pervasive, it's entered every area of our lives. And we could probably spend the next, like, hours upon hours talking about every intricate detail of this. But I think the reason why we live this way is because it really, it soothes out, it smooths out our inadequacies, and it magnifies our successes. And I want to say it's, it's the reason why there's so many broken places in our city and in our world that often get overlooked or not cared for because just like at the fall, we hide our own mess and we point the finger at someone else. That's what we do in pride all the time. And see, Obadiah here um, and his people, the Israelites, 
They knew their own distress and their own calamity, and they knew that it was actually deserved because God had told them about it many, many times. And Israel had sinned, and they had been warned, and God had promised judgment, just like Habakkuk had said, um, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But they also knew that Edom was guilty as well. And the reality is that Edom should have seen God's judgment on Israel and on his people and actually trembled. She should have actually humbled herself and repented of her own pride and cried out to the Lord for mercy so that it wouldn't happen to them. But instead of doing that, Edom in its pride gloated over the pain and loss of Israel. And God reveals to Obadiah here that he's not going to let that type of pride go unpunished. And God gives Obadiah a a look into the future and he writes in verses really 1 through 16 of this great and terrible day of the Lord's coming. And he, he writes when all accounts are going to be settled and pride is going to be wiped out and once and for all, God is going to judge that. And so Obadiah writes about that. But what Obadiah most likely doesn't understand and what's true for most prophecies is that this prophecy wasn't just for a specific people. He wasn't just specifically talking about the historical judgments that happened upon Edom. But it's also a picture of what is to come on the final judgment day at the end of the age. It's a both and type of prophecy. See, there's coming a day when justice is going to be achieved, when pride is going to be abolished, when violent and proud nations are going to be wiped off of the face of this earth, and there's going to be people that no longer boast in anything else. God is going to make a final statement, and he's going to make a final statement for the abandoned and for the needy of the world. And I know that's not a popular message, but God has promised that he's going to return and that he's going to judge the world and he's going to wipe out pride and he's going to bring in hope for the humble and the needy. He's promised that. Which is really what Obadiah gets to in the final five verses. I wish that was the longer part, but it's not. And after the, after the call for the judgment of Obadiah, he really shifts to this voice of hope for God's people in the midst of that final day. And Obadiah assures the people of God that on that day, the Lord will be their hope. For those that are a part, those who, who are part of God's family will have hope despite their unbelief and despite their own pride. That there's hope for those who humble themselves and who actually trust God for his mercy. That they're going to receive grace and they're going to inherit a kingdom that doesn't belong to the Babylonians and doesn't belong to the Edomites, but actually belongs to the Lord. I want to read verses 17 through 21. It says this, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau stubble, and they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivors to the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those from the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those from, I'm just going to screw up a bunch of words here, okay, just so you know, Shephlip in the land of the Philistines, they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the exiles of the host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as 
Zepharathas, I don't know if that's right, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shephard shall possess the cities of Negeb. Saviors shall go up from Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. In these verses, these are verses of hope to God's people. They're reminders of the promises that God made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to their descendants that they would possess the land. And it's a reminder that God's plans will not be frustrated by the pride of human men. Now, from our New Testament perspective, we can see that there's a much larger fulfillment than what Obadiah saw here, that the people of God is not just limited to the Jewish remnant that was taken out, but now reaches out to embrace all who trust Christ. Galatians tells us that that there's neither Jew nor Greek, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings and heirs to the promise. So not only is the people of God larger than what Obadiah saw, but the fulfillment of God's promise to land is actually bigger than that as well. In Romans 4.13, says that descendants of Abraham will inherit the world, not just some near eastern um, territory of Palestine. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, which is really the same thing that Obadiah ends with here when he says, And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. See, the good news is that in the hope, there is hope despite the brokenness around us and in us. That God is still supremely ruling and he's going to keep his word. As we think about this book and how this actually applies to our own lives, there's a couple things I want to point out real quickly here. First, there's there's this, there's a call in in this book to remember that pride is deceptive. Pride is deceptive. Verse 3 says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. We need to be very careful because pride is very deceiving. I want to say in our culture now, the deception of pride has actually even made pride a good thing. Part of the definition of pride now is something that's good. Take pride in your work. What does that mean? I take pride in my work so that everyone else, like, I can put some stuff on there. I know there's some good pieces of that. In, in, in the schools right here, the slogan right now is Culver Pride. It's what you said, Miles. We're forming a community so that we can be good and look at everyone else and say, you should be like us. Pride, the deception of pride, always leads us to looking down and judging someone else. Pride makes us think that we're independent, self-sufficient, and invulnerable. Pride is based on a lie that, that we are supreme and God is not. And when we yield to the temptation of pride, what will happen is that we will always lose the capacity to think and feel and act without deception. Pride deceives us. Pride distorts every area of thought and life. Pride makes your and my convictions regarding moral and and theological issues more valuable than God's word himself often. And the problem is that God hates pride and he's going to bring it down. We see this in the entire book, but verse 4 four specifically says that, Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, thence I will bring you down, says the Lord. 
Jesus says the same thing in Luke 16. He says, What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The things that are exalted among men are often and usually and always pride. If we choose pride to live without God, if we choose to live that way, He will grant us that independence. God allows us to live in pride. He allows us to live that way if we choose it. The problem is that, that this prophecy tells us and what we see in, throughout Scripture is that God is going to make good on this prophecy. He's going to bring down pride. And when that day comes, He will not be our refuge and He will not be our righteousness in the midst of judgment. He will bring the proud low. But the good news and the hope of this is that God has actually made a way of escape. He's made a way of salvation from his wrath. Verse 17 reminds us of that. It says, In Mount Zion there shall be those that escape, and it shall be holy, a holy people. He was writing to Israel. Israel was not an innocent holy people. That's why they got ran out of the city in the first place. You see, the city of God is not filled with people who have never sinned but people who are actually broken and in their humility and see their own sin and rather than continuing to live in pride, have seen their need of mercy and hope that only God can bring. And the good news about God is that although he's ruling over all things and he has power over all things to cause them to to do what he will, God doesn't just dwell in this place of high and mighty and speaking things over, over people. God loves to exalt the humble, and to give favor to the humble. Psalm 138.6 says this, For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly. Isaiah 57.15 says it this way, Thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is contrite and humble spirit. Although God is so high, He loves the humble. There's probably no greater picture than this than seen in the person of Jesus Christ. See, the God, God the Father has infinite delight in the Son because the Son esteemed the Father so highly that Jesus chose to die the worst death possible rather than to forsake the Father's assignment on his life. And God loves to exalt the humble. And God has exalted Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't just teach about these things, about living without pride. He was a living example of what it meant to walk humbly before God. Jesus always did the will of the Father. And he was obedient even until the point of death. So it's very fitting that the one who has the most to be proud about who actually humbled themselves the most deeply, whose obedience cost them the greatest, most imaginable self-denial, should be the one that is the most highly exalted. Take a look at what Philippians 2 says in verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has highly exalted him. And why? 
Because verse 6, right before that, tells us this. It says, Because though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And so what name did Jesus get after the resurrection that he didn't have before that? It's not Jesus. Jesus is the name of the humble servant who went to Calvary. In Acts 2, Peter tells us that the name is this. He says this, Let let the house of Israel know, notice surely that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It was his lordship, his messianic lordship that was bestowed on him and that's what God has given him when he exalted him. It's not that Jesus wasn't the the Messiah or Lord before his resurrection. He was, but he had not yet fulfilled the mission of the Messiah until he died for our sins and rose again three days later. And therefore, because before his death and resurrection, the lordship over the world had not yet really been brought into full actuality. The rebel forces were were not yet defeated. The power of darkness still held the world in its grips. In order to be claimed, to, to be acclaimed the Messiah and the Lord, the Son of God had to come. He had to defeat the enemy of God. He had to lead his people out of bondage and in triumph over sin and over pride and over death. And Jesus did that on Good Friday and on Easter morning. And that's really good news. That's hope. In 1 John 3, 8, it says, The reason the Son of God appeared to us was to destroy the works of the devil. In Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15, I know I'm just giving you a bunch of scripture today. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death who were subject to lifelong bondage. That's what Jesus did on the cross and at the resurrection. When Jesus died on the cross, making atonement with his blood for our sins, Satan was defeated. Christ disarmed the principalities and powers. He made a public example of them, triumphing over them at the cross. The sting of death was removed, the power of sin was broken, and the triumph of Christ was exalted. And pride was removed. You see, the name that is above every name is Lord. Lord victorious. The victorious Lord over all of his enemies. Jesus defeated pride through his humble sacrifice and now is supremely Lord, reigning, and he's going to come Again, So you see at the end of the age when the, the mission and the purpose of the church really reaches its conclusion, the name of Jesus will be centered around the world. And at the name of Jesus, the Lord and King, every knee will bow, whether angels in heaven or below, people living on in the earth or under the earth, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the hope of Obadiah. And whether, whether Obadiah knew it or not, when he was talking about Israel, that is the hope that he's bringing to Israel. And that is the hope, that is the hope of the day that Obadiah is talking about. See, this day that he's prophesying is a day when believers and unbelievers will acknowledge that Jesus has triumphed over the enemies. And the humble, 
Those that believe will be acknowledged and they will enter into everlasting joy. And those that live in pride, the unbelieving, will be in everlasting shame, cast outside of relationship with the one who actually can give hope. I want you to know that Jesus desires to be Lord of your life, to remove your self-pride, that he died for that purpose. So that pride would be spit out. So that you and I might be saved. That we might be brought back into a relationship with God where we would actually acknowledge him as Supreme Lord. Jesus is the most important person that ever lived. And Jesus is precious because he removes our guilt and our sin. He's precious because he gives us eternal life. To know him is more valuable than knowing the most famous person you can think of or the most powerful person in history. To be known and loved by him is a far greater honor than than if every head of of the world and their country would come and bow before your presence and ask you, what should we do? You see, when this world is over, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and nothing else will matter. Nothing else we took pride in will matter. Only Jesus being Lord of your life will matter. And Jesus wants to be Lord of every area of your life. There's no time or place or activity or daily routine that Jesus doesn't want to be the owner of, to be the provider of, to be the Lord of. Please know that God is on a mission of rooting out pride. He's on a mission of rooting out pride in the life of his people so that he can heal them and make them humble servants like his son. And he will stop at nothing to make sure that it actually gets accomplished. If it takes the fall of a nation like we see here in Obadiah, he will do that. If it takes the fall of your own life and everything around you crumbling, he will do that. Don't be deceived by pride that something other than Jesus is more important. God is calling us, he's reminding us here in Obadiah that he desires that we would be a people that, he would, that would care for the abandoned and for the needy, and that we would put away our own pride, and that we would bring hope and healing to those that are overlooked in the city the way that we were overlooked before. That in hope, that we get to take hope that he's going to return, that he's going to bring healing for all of the brokenness in your life, and all of the brokenness in the world that we've talked about today, and all of the areas of pride that we put above things, he's going to bring healing for that. And he's going to once and for all bring us to a place of need of him and where we would rest completely in his salvation. Until he returns to that day, we get to walk in the image that that is a reality in our life. Because when Jesus comes and changes your life, that's who you are now. That is true of you. It's not just some future reality. It's an everyday reality now that you get to walk in. That you get to...
to learn to live that this is my new identity. A person of hope, a person who doesn't have to be prideful, a person who doesn't have to have others look to them. That we get to be people of need that continually look to Jesus and say, be the Lord of my life in all areas. So I want to pray for us and pray that God would continue to root out pride in our lives and continue to make us into his humble servants. Father, we thank you for the book of Obadiah. Father, as we look at the, the pain and the suffering of your people and see how that you are continuing to pursue them and continuing to bring hope and that you brought that hope in the person of Jesus. Father, we are so thankful that you made a way for us to escape our own pride. Father, I pray that, that we would see our need of you in all areas. Father, I pray that we would have a great hope for the future, that like Israel, we are exiled waiting for that day, waiting for the day when you will restore the world as you promised. Father, make us a people that image you well, that pursue and care for the abandoned and the needy the way you care for the abandoned and needy of us. Father, we know that we were abandoned because of our sin and because of our pride and that in shame we look down on others. And so, Father, we thank you that we no longer have to live in shame, but that you have removed all shame and all guilt and that we get to live in the light of your Son. So, Father, as we go to communion, I pray that you would remind our hearts of that and that we would be people that bring hope to a world that has no hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.